Okay, let's start with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord of mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine, thy Father, who is from everlasting, and thine all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Oh, Christ is in our midst. He is in our shelter. There is a term in orthodoxy. There is something called the PLN. You ever heard of the PLN? The post-liturgical nap that some people like to take. But you don't get your PLN yet because you have class. That's why I like to call people who come to class the true ascetics, the true spiritual strugglers. But I could use a PLN. So we had a, a teen retreat that was really fun. But I had to talk for three hours to the kids. But it wasn't just straight lecture. It was questions. We did Q&A with the kids. They submitted three by five cards in advance with questions about life, relationships, um, insecurity, depression, all kinds of things. So we had a really edifying time with the, with the teens. And we had kids come, I don't know how many, I don't know what the head count was, but we had kids come from like, like seven different Orthodox churches throughout Washington. So it was really wonderful. But if I seem a little tired, it's because I am a little tired, but the joy of the Lord is my strength, and that joy cannot be exhausted. So I will do my best to, to try to uh, maintain my energy, usually once I get started with teaching class. That little reserve energy kicks in. So we are, we're going to get right into our next chapter of our book. Now, we, we don't have enough books for everybody, but if you guys want to share copies, or if you don't feel like you need a copy... Um, let us know, but please kind of hand those around, see who would like one. We'll do our best. Um, and if maybe with the number of people we have, maybe I should start printing out copies of the chapters. And again, depending on your, your style and your personality and your preference, you, you know, you may or may not want to have a book. Um, I'm going to shut the door, though, since we're going to move here. We do this as a kind of a read-aloud book study. I, I read um, from the text and then comment here and there. And um, so... I don't know if is it easy enough to follow along if you put your finger on the page when we stop and, and comment. So we're on chapter nine. What page is chapter nine? One thirty-nine. Okay. Love stronger than death. This is a good time of year to be covering this topic. Okay. So through his death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ, who is the love of God incarnate has destroyed the power of sin and death and has raised 
humanity to the right hand of God. Um, okay, I'll continue. The essence of sin is the, is the failure to love. The, the technical term for, um, for sin is... Um, sin is... Uh, Well, those of you who like Greek, hamartia. Um, sin, sin has the implication of um, a lot of times as offense or offending, and especially that's our that's our kind of our Western scholastic and po- Catholic and post-Catholic heritage. Um, it, it has the implication of offending the truth and if god is truth then it's offending god as if as if god can be offended but the word technically means it's more like it's like an archery term missing the mark and so um, what is our what is our goal as persons created in the image of god who is love What's our what's our the mark we're aiming for, so to speak? Perfection. Perfection, perfection, kind of, but that's not even good enough. Perfection's not holiness. Okay. Love of God. Love, love, love. So I told the kids, and I like to tell everyone every once in a while that um, everything, everything in Christianity and everything in our faith is ultimately about love, even when we're talking about sin. Because, again, our view of humanity is that humanity is not defined by its sin, but it was, it's defined by God's original creative intention in making and creating us. What did God create us for? Love. Because God is... God is love. God is love. That's the simplest way for us to understand. But I always like to provide the corrective. It's not that love is God. Love is fill in the blank, but that God is love. And and what is God? Uncreated, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, yet loving us enough in order to reveal himself to us. Does knowing God mean that you have encompassed God in your rational understanding? Of course not. I was just reading... The, the first chapter of a book in, uh, called The Orthodox Way. Have you guys read The Orthodox Way? It's a very good book. By It was ri- originally written by a man named Timothy Ware, who's now called Metropolitan Callistos Ware. But that book is very good, and chapter one is called The Mystery of God. And he talks about how those of us who are seeking to know God, you've probably, you've probably heard this in the past here and there, um, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Our knowledge of God is not defined by our ability to enumerate the attributes of God. To say, this is, I can describe God really well. That's not what encompasses Him. But what truly, what truly, actually, defines the human experience of God is not their rational knowledge, but their experience of God. What Father Seraphim Rose calls God's revelation to the human heart. 
That doesn't mean, so I can say certain things about Patrick. He likes plaids. He's kind of quiet, but he's thoughtful and contemplative. But that doesn't mean I've defined Patrick. And all the more goes with God. There's certain things, grand, amazing things that we can know about God. But because we say those things about him, that doesn't mean necessarily prove that we're close to him. One of the most famous um, quotes in Orthodox, uh, we, we're full of quotes in Orthodoxy, um, is by, attributed to Evagoras of Pontus. And it goes like this. Something like, I don't know exactly, but um, one, is it the one? You guys have probably heard it. Who truly prays. is a theologian. And a, and a true theologian. Sorry about my messy handwriting. Is one who truly prays. Evagoras um, of Pontus, an early church father. But you see, it doesn't say, looks like throne, but it's the one. And it's the one who truly prays is a, you could say, I think it's a true theologian. What is a, what is a theologian? One who prays. <laughs> what is one who truly prays? A theologian. Are you and I called to pray? St. Paul encourages us to pray without ceasing. That's, that's our goal. And what is prayer? This is a big question. What is prayer? I have, I have a simple definition of it in my mind that I, that I like to use from the writing of St. John Climacus. But what do you think of when you think of prayer? What are, what are a couple of things? And then I'll, I will get back to our topic. When you think of prayer, what, like what... What picture comes to mind, or what does prayer mean? Any communion with God? Mm -hmm. What do you think when you think of prayer, Chad? Talking. So conversation. About you, Sienna. What do you think of when you think of prayer? Repentance. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good part of prayer. What about you, Cole? You have anything when you think of prayer? Focus. 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 Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyone else? What do you think of Camille? Incense, right? Let my prayer rise in thy sight as incense. Like this says in the Psalms, and we do it every Vespers. Anyone else? The icon of Christ of an icon of sass. You think of? Always. The icon of Christ? When you think of prayer? Yeah, beautiful. Anything else? Worship. Worship. Of course, in the Orthodox Church, we think of prayer ropes, too. Because we use the, the prayer rope a lot. And the Jesus prayer. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Um, so the, the definition that St. John Climacus gives of, of prayer is um, union. No, converse and union with God. Prayer is converse, conversation, 
interaction. The fathers use the word, the, a word that trans, doesn't, it doesn't sound good in English, but intercourse or discourse. But discourse is more like a conversation. In, intercourse is a conversation of being, you could say, and, and they don't mean it in a sexual way. But the co, like co-being with God, you could say. Co-being with God, being with. I often think of the, 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 from the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. When I think of prayer. And one of the things, I think all of you know what not to say, although it is an honest one, sometimes when people think of prayer, they think of asking, requesting for things of God too. And we do that, but we don't, but that's not the main content of our prayer. Um, so, uh, St. John Clemenchus prayer, can you read my crazy writing? is um, converse, you know, converse as in conversation, not the shoes, and union with God. St. John. Clemens. Um. You, does anyone know what Clemicus means? Does anyone want an extra vegan cookie? <laughs> of the latter, yeah. So St. John, um, we're going to commemorate him this coming week in the church. Clemicus comes from the word climax. He wrote the book called The Ladder of Divine, Divine Ascent. So he's called St. John Clemicus. I've heard people call him St. John Clemicus of the Ladder. But actually that just means... St. John of the Ladder, of the Ladder. But he's technically St. John of Sinai, of St. Catherine's Monastery. He was near and attached to St. Catherine's Monastery, Sinai, where Moses went and received the Ten Commandments. There's an Orthodox monastery there now. And there is a, a bush that's been preserved that is the preservation of the original burning bush. And we have a clipping of that actually back behind our uh, church. That someone cut all the way down to the ground when they were doing yard work. So I'm hoping it comes back when the spring hits. It's a very hardy plant, but we have a clipping from the burning bush that just goes crazy when it gets a little sunny. But we'll see, we'll see how it do- goes. But St. John Clemicus is St. John of Sinai or St. John of the Ladder, because he wrote the Ladder of Divine Ascent, or St. John Clemicus. So it's kind of, kind of interesting. But he's, he would not have been known probably very well if someone had not approached him and said, write a book on the monastic life. And he said, well, I don't want to. Because he lived a life of solitude and prayer. He wasn't trying to draw attention to himself in any way. And that's one of the things about true holiness is this doesn't seek to bear witness to itself, but always to God. And, um, but out of obedience, he wrote a book. And I've heard this, I haven't, I don't know how to prove it, but I've heard that universally the Ladder of Divine Ascent is the second most published and read book to the Bible in, throughout history. Um, it, it's very old. It goes back to, I don't remember, 5th century, 4th, 5th century. Um, I'll have to talk more about that next week. But love it always goes back to um, sin 
sin as a failure to love. And then we enter into a relationship with God through this thing that we call prayer, this experience of prayer that we're, that we're aiming for. And uh, so the essence of sin is a failure to love. It's missing this mark. And the fathers will say, what is, what is the opposite of true love? Or the, you know, what is in opposition to it? It's uh, philaftia, self-love, self-love. Not love of what are the two commandments that Christ gave us to set everything straight? Love God and neighbor. Sometimes on, on a Feast of the Cross, I like to remind of those. Those are the, the, the vertical and horizontal dimensions of the Christian life. Love of God and love of neighbor. Love God and one another. And the cross reminds us that's the fullness of our calling of our life in Christ. You can't just have one. Because then you have, you know, the letter I. And it, well, you just, and it cuts everyone else out. And you cannot love God. St. John, the, the theologian, says you cannot love God whom you cannot see if you do not love your brother whom you can see. Because not only were you and I individually created to enter into a unique communion of love with God, but a unique communion of loving God together with one another. Um, you hear people use the word, they call it koinonia. Have you ever heard that? Or kinonia, it's actually kinonia in Greek. Um, it's sometimes it's pronounced as, um, or translated as fellowship. But it's, that, it's that, that communion that we share in Christ with one another. Um, kinonia. So, okay. So we made it through one sentence of our book so far. I'm going to try to, this is what happens. Especially after I'm a little sleepy and a little jived from doing a youth retreat. So cut off, okay. So um, in their rebellion, Adam and Eve refused the divine love made food offered to them by God, preferring instead life on their own. And we have a sacramental view of existence in the Orthodox Church, which means that God created everything as a means of communion with Him. And we've lost our perspective and we've corrupted that communion by using things as ends in and of themselves. So no longer do we see the, the earth, the, the firmaments as our cathedral and the earth as our church, you know? But we see them as resources and things for us to, to consume. We've lost perspective. So we've fallen, preferring instead life on their own. And I like the word transgression with regard to what happened because transgression, transgressing is a turning against or turning away from. And what have we turned away from? We've turned away from our original calling. Or what I like to refer to as God's original creative intention in making us creating us for love, we've transgressed the calling to love. We've transgressed the opportunity to enter into communion with God by turning away from Him. Just like I can go... You're my best friend. I really, you can tell I've been working with youth for the last couple of days. I really love being with you. I don't like you anymore. I've transgressed that relationship. You know what? I've turned against it. And... We, we can create all of these ca like categories for whether we're with God or 
in or out of God's favor, but we use more of a relational, and you could even say a therapeutic um, way of speaking about our relationship with God. So, cut off from loving communion with God, mankind has become enslaved to its own self-centeredness, the inevitable consequence of which is death. Because if, if God is life, the separation from God results in death. And we know, we know that physical death is not eternal, eternal death as in annihilation, but it is death as in a willful separation from life. God, and we don't believe that God annihilates those who choose to transgress that original calling that they have. So it's like a living death, what death, what death is. You know, it's very, it's a, and it's a great tragedy. Um, but it's self-centeredness, yes, and the inevitable consequence of which is death. So God, however, was not willing that the creature which bore his image should simply return back to the nothingness from which he was created. And we hear a prayer of St. Basil, For thou didst not wish, O Master, that the work of thy hands should perish, neither, neither dost thou take pleasure in the destruction of men, but thou desirest that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We said that today in the service. Yet only one thing could accomplish this, a love stronger than man's failure to love. Ultimately, a love stronger than death. And that's a reference to Song of Songs 8. If the fruit of paradise was divine love made food for man, then Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son and Word of God, is divine love made flesh. Love incarnate, you could say. Love incarnate. That's what incarnate means, made flesh. For God so loved the world... Do you guys know this? Can you say it with your eyes closed? That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We've said that true love means the total gift of one's self to another, the emptying of one's self. I've said this quite a few times in different sessions. Do you know what one of my favorite definitions, aside from God is love, but what one of my favorite definitions of love is? Anyone? Maybe you, you guys, a couple of you would know from one of, a couple of our sections. I like to call love, it's kind of simple. Going out from oneself without ceasing to be oneself. It's a good thing I didn't have a whiteboard at the, at the youth retreat. <laughs> I would have been having too much fun. Going out from, from oneself without ceasing to be oneself because we're always worried about losing ourselves somehow. If we give too much, if we give... But... Christ corrected the false kind of love, which is self-destructive and, you know, we could say codependent. And it taught us what true love is. And the, the Greek word for, for that kind of self-emptying, it's a very good, good word. We'll probably talk about it again. The Greek word for it is um, 
kenosis. Um, kenosis, which just means it means uh, self-emptying. God is the love of God is canonic. The love of God is a love that is constantly going forth from from Himself, and that's that's one of the things I love to say about the persons of the Trinity. They're constantly going forth, you could say, from themselves into one another. A perfect communion, a perfect communion of selfless love. I won't take that any further because I could talk about the Trinity for a while, but let's keep going. But emptying oneself. So, thus did God love us when the Son, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And we hear this about this kenosis. But God, but he, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In our fallen existence, this profound self-emptying must inevitably take the form of sacrifice and suffering, for such love is no longer natural to us. This is why the Apostle Paul insists that the self-emptying of Christ was unto death, even the death of the cross. It was not enough to... That um, God simply appear on earth as a man and teach us a better way to live. For man to be healed of his sin and achieve the purpose for which he was created. This divine love made flesh had to enter into the lowest depths of human existence. He had to partake in his own person of the ultimate consequences of man's sinfulness. Man's rebellion could be healed only by divine obedience. Man's self-centeredness could be destroyed only by the divine self-sacrifice on the cross, which is the revelation of God's love and the triumph of life over death, of truth over falsehood. Man's enslavement to death and corruption could be loosed only by the resurrection of him who has life in himself, Christ who he is. What did he say of himself? I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Finally, the limitations of man's created nature could be transcended only by ascending to heaven with him who first descended to earth. So there's a full cycle here. A lot of, a lot of people think, like, I, they talk about the absurdity of Christianity. They say, God got, got mad at man who um, offended him. That's what they think of transgression or sin, offending God. God was offended. Hum- humans needed to be punished. So they were punished with death and suffering and hell. And then God wanted to solve the problem for us. He had to direct that, the natural consequence of sin, which is, it creates like a, you know, God needed an, almost like needed an outlet for his wrath or for his anger. And in order for that anger to be appeased, he sent his son so that he could let loose on him on our behalf. This is a view called substitutionary atonement. God was so mad that he sent 
He sent his some people will say he sent himself down to earth so that he could get mad at himself instead of getting mad at us and kill himself. But he couldn't die so that he rose so he, he rose again. But he appeased himself. It's like it's a funny it's a funny way of thinking about it if you think about it in terms of the appeasement of God's wrath. God is angry for those who have turned against him. We would the, the language of wrath, I would say, and uh, anger is used throughout the scripture. It is. Um, but as a righteous one, and we also have, I heard someone say that something that was very insightful to me. He said, we also talk about God, the right hand of God, the eye of God, the mouth and the tongue of God, especially in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Does that mean that there's an eyeball floating around up in the sky? No, it doesn't. But it means God has perception in a way that we can understand, we can speak of God seeing, but God doesn't see in the way that God doesn't need to see in the way that we see. You and I experience anger, but God's anger, just like his sight, is very different than our understanding of anger or experience. It's just a word that we can understand for an experience of God that feels um, <laughs> like a punishment sometimes, or you know? And we know that God disciplines those he loves, but we would never say to appease his own wrath. The reason the church originally teaches, and you can read this in this beautiful book called On the Incarnation by, by St. Athanasius. Athanasius. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a kind of a tough book to read, but, but it's, it's worth your time. If you can be patient with yourself. Um, he became man in order to unite himself fully to what we are. And we've talked about this in the past, but it's so important to continue to emphasize. He became what we are so that we can, can become what he is. And to overcome death by death. And we would say to deify humanity. It's kind of a funny word. Our view, our, the, 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 the word, the big word we use for, for salvation is theosis. Have you, ever, you guys ever heard that term? Theosis? Another. Theosis. Which is from theos. And theosis just means union with or becoming, you know, Becoming one with or uniting with God. We were created to unite with God. Not to just be on good terms with God, but to be in communion with God. And that's, that's the love, the inexhaustible love that we're called. If God is uncreated and we're created, we'll never exhaust the experience of entering into the love of God. And he wanted to restore that. And in order to prove in a way, in order to not just prove on a, in a human way, but to show and to accomplish the potential of the human nature by becoming fully man, he became man. He experienced, he, he sanctified every, every moment from conception through death, died a death on the cross, which we talked about today. The perfect expression of his love, selfless love. It wasn't a demonstration of power, but of love, of love, of worldly power. 
selflessness. And then he triumphed over death. And then what was the last thing that he did? Ascended. And a lot of times people don't know what to do with the ascension. Growing up, we never talked about the ascension really. Other than, oh, he left so that we could be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which is kind of true. I mean, but, but that's not the only reason. Um, when he ascended, he ascended as the God-man. Not just that he didn't leave his flesh behind, but the divinized, the, the humanity that he had taken on himself went to heaven to, to show what our created nature is, what we were created for. He fulfilled the calling to which we were called so that we could follow after him. It's really amazing. So, continuing. Um, John, where did I leave off? Man's enslavement. Okay, yes. Finally, the limitations of man's created nature could be transcended only by ascending into heaven. Yes, okay. That's where we left off. In the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before his arrest, Jesus prayed that the cup of suffering might pass from him. Sounds familiar, huh? I, mentioned, I, I quoted from this in today's homily. Um, nevertheless, he said, so he, he said, if you, if you will, like, let this, let this cup pass from me to show that he wasn't completely unfeeling, that he wasn't passive, that it wasn't just kind of this nice, you know, act, play acting that he was doing, but that it was true suffering. But he overcame, he reversed what happened in the fall, turning against God by, and being disobedient. Obedience is not just about adherence to authority. When love is in the picture, obedience is about trust. Trusting. So if God says, we talked with the, the kids about this a little bit. What if you want to do something and you go ask your priest about it and he says, no, don't do that. What are you going to do? I mean, are you going to go find another priest? Okay, I'll go find a priest who says it's cool for me to, I don't know, get a, a facial tattoo or something like that. You know. But that's why obedience is actually looked at as such a, an important, even kind of introductory virtue in the Orthodox Church. Because obedience is out of trust. And you can only trust one whom you are convinced loves you. So that plays out in practical ways. And it has been abused. I mean, it's abused among people, even in the church. The abuse of power, manipulating people, misusing, misusing um, people who are exercising obedience. Um, but um, so that happens. But that the obedience that we're talking about is, is one that is a holy obedience. And the way, we, the way we experience it on a practical level, just as we're learning, is trusting the, the church and her guidance. You know, trusting the church and her prescriptions to us on how we should live. And then as you mature and as you grow, like making sure you come to church on Sunday. Um, observing the fasting times. If 
if the church teaches to prescribes Bible readings every day, there's a reason for that, because we should be reading the Bible every day. For example, you know, those kinds of things, just practical things that are showing that we trust the one who's guiding us, that they will lead us unto, you could say, wellness. But it's even, you know, it's better than wellness, but true healing. And then as we mature, we seek counsel, too, on specific things. We distrust ourselves, and we start asking a spiritual father, or we dialogue with one another. I was reading about the life of a monastic who was a, a godly, like an inspired person, we'll say. Everyone would go to him for advice because he was a true theologian. He was one who had constant prayer. But when he had to make a, a decision, he would ask anyone. He would even go to a novice and ask them what, what he thought so that he wasn't relying on his own will. So that he wasn't, and he trusted in God's providence. So he'd go to, should we, I don't know, should we replace the sink in the, you know, in the monastery? Yeah, that'd be a good idea. Okay, thank you. May it be blessed. You know, so talk to another person. But nothing is done in isolation. You know, that's one of the things. Obedience and trust and love connect us with one another. When we fall into distrust and disobedience, then we fall into disarray and suspicion. And um, the only way for that to be healed is for there to be forgiveness too which is worked out in the church. Um, constant, the constant endeavor to be reconciled with one another and to grow together as we're pursuing Christ with one another. When Christ took upon himself our humanity from the virgin, he assumed all natural aspects of the human nature, including the human will. That's why he could say, who is very God, a very God, he could say, not my will, but thy will. In his earthly life, the human will was inextricably joined with the divine will in perfect harmony. This harmony reached its crescendo in the Garden of Gethsemane. St. Maximus the Confessor wrote, According to that which was, has come to pass for us, he became man as we are. He said humanly to his God and Father, Not my will, but thy, thine which triumphs. For he who was God by nature had also, inasmuch as he was man, to will the accomplishment of the will of the Father. Thus, the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ overcame the disobedience of Adam through his obedience to the will of the Father. After Jesus' arrest and trial at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, he was beaten and mocked by the Roman soldiers. They robed him in purple and uh, the color of royalty and placed upon his most pure head a crown of thorns. In this, Christ manifested the supreme humility of God and thereby conquered the pride of fallen man. This is one of our Lenten hymns. He who is the king of the angels is arrayed in a crown of thorns. He who wraps the heavens in clouds is wrapped in the purple of mockery. He who in the Jordan set Adam free receives blows upon his face. And actually we see, um, we see this, this icon a lot of times. This is representing Christ in the tomb. And 
it's called extreme, extreme humility. Sometimes Theotokos is there because the sword is piercing her side as she's seeing her son suffer. His passion. Upon the cross, the love of God for mankind reached its apex as Christ descended into the, to the lowest point of human experience, suffering and death. Here we see most clearly the great paradox of spiritual reality. God's glory is most abundantly manifest in his acceptance of human suffering. This self-emptying, there's that word again, self-emptying, kenosis. This self-emptying of God for the sake of man is the exact inverse of man's attempt to assume for himself the glory of God. One of the things we could say about the fall of man is that it was man's attempt to be God without God. Have you ever heard anything like that? An attempt to be God without God. Good luck. Not going to happen. We tried and we failed. But God loved us enough in order to allow us to become God with God. By pouring out his most pure blood upon the cross, Christ not only blotted out the record of man's sin, but overcame the power by which sin holds man captive. Thus does the cross of Christ destroy the power of man's rebellion. It is important to note that the suffering and the death of Christ was effective for man's salvation, not merely because Christ was an in, in, in innocent man unjustly slain, but because he was God. St. Gregory the theologian wrote, We needed an incarnate God, a God put to death, that we might live. Only God could take upon himself the consequence of man's sin and thereby destroy them. Only God could enter the realm of death and fill it with his immortal life. Another from the liturgy of St. Basil, He gave himself as a ransom to death in which we were held captive, sold under sin, descending through the cross into Hades, that he might fill all things with himself. He loosed the pangs of death. He arose on the third day, having made for all flesh a path to the resurrection from the dead, since it was not possible for the author of life to be a victim of corruption. There's all kinds of interesting writings in the, in the church fathers about how the, the devil was kind of tricked there. One of the most famous comes from the... Uh, I can't read it all to you because we read it on... On Holy Pascha, but I can read a little section of it to you. I don't have my book. Let me grab it. They talk about how Hades thought it was receiving man. And it found itself face to face with God instead. And therefore, Hades was vexed. So I'll read a couple. You call it a teaser. A teaser. I have to learn more. I, working with kids, I, remember, I think I have, I have to learn more um, contemporary terminology. Since I've been in the church, I haven't, I haven't really paid attention much. And uh, I've realized that it gets people's attention. You know what a teaser is. I can tell. So let me see. Um, 
Paschal homily. Okay, 385. I'll read just a couple little things for you. So, mm-hmm. we read this on Pascha or Easter, as is as, as said in the West, um, the day of the resurrection. And uh, he says... He that was taken by death has annihilated it. He descended into Hades. So Hades, the enemy wants to to take us captive, to keep us from God. That's Satan's goal. Um, I'll, I'll comment on that in just a moment. He descended into Hades trying to take this virtuous man named Jesus captive, but he descended into Hades and took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And anticipating this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was purged. It was embittered for it was despoiled. It was bittered for it was bound in chains. I want to celebrate Pascha. I still have a, I'm only halfway there. Um, oh, one of the, I, I heard a really helpful teaching about, about uh, the devil and, his, and the demons. Um, I don't want to go too far off, have too, too much fun talking about another tangent. But someone was giving a, a lesson about the devil and the demons, and he said, they, you know, they're jealous of God, His influence, His authority, His power, and they're they're not humble; they're proud. The fallen angels are proud, and they want to hurt God. But what are you going to do? Like throw stones at God? You can't shoot an arrow at God. You can't run at Him as fast as you can and bump into Him, you know, and hurt. How do you how do you hurt God? You you can't. God's impassable in that way. So you go after the ones that God loves and you try to pull them away from him. That's what would make God sorrowful. That's what would make God experience pain, you know. And so that's why they go after us in the spiritual warfare. Although there is a famous story about sometimes they can just leave us to our own devices. There's a famous story about... uh, St. Anthony getting a knock on his door and he opens it up and Satan's standing there and he goes, why is everyone blaming everything on me? I'm just leaving them to their own devices. See what I'm saying? But there's both. There's evil influence and they want to pull us away from God. To, and the, the best way to do it is either to convince us that we're self-sufficient or to cause us to lose hope, to think that this life isn't worth living and nothing matters. Why try? Give up. So, okay, continuing on. I think I'm at right after the quote from St. Basil, is that right? The resurrection of Christ frees all mankind from the bonds of corruption and death because. Death had no power over him who is life and love himself. 
Forty days after his resurrection, Christ gathered his disciples at the Mount of Olives, Acts 1, before, having, before their eyes he ascended into heaven, into the heavens. With this, the economy of his salvation came full circle, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, having lived a human life and died a human death, and having risen again victorious over death, now ascended back to his Father, because who, yeah, who can ascend except for he who hath descended first? So he's ascended back to his Father as both God and man. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. It's from the Gospel of John 3. By assuming the entirety of our nature, Christ lived a perfect human life. In becoming man, Christ recreated the original image of God and man which had become distorted through sin. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. In dying a human death upon the cross, he assumed the totality of man's rebellion. There was no consequence of man's fall that Christ did not take upon himself. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In 2 Corinthians 5. In rising from the dead, Christ brought with himself the human nature that he had assumed and made it forever incorruptible. Because of the consubstantiality of human nature, that means being of the same substance, consubstantial, um, all men have a part in the resurrection of the dead. And we have a quote from 1 Corinthians 15. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. By ascending into heaven, Christ has taken our humanity and placed it forever at the right hand of God the Father. Man was originally created to become like God and reign eternally with him. In Christ, human nature attains the purpose for which it was created. Another quote from the Bible, Ephesians 2, Even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ, enlivened us, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our calling. Just before his ascension, Christ told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the promised comforter who guarantees Christ's abiding presence with his disciples. The coming of the Spirit on his Pentecost marked the birth of the church, the body of Christ. Thus, Jesus' last words on earth were about the founding of his church. Jesus ascended, two angels appeared to the disciples and told them that one day Christ would return in the same manner. The promise of the coming of the Spirit and the birth of the church is therefore followed by the promise of Christ's return and the consummation of all things. Indeed, the church lives precisely in this time between the ascension of Christ and his second coming. Thus, the church is both the remembrance of that which Christ has accomplished for us and the anticipation of his return in glory. 
But more than that, the church is the living experience in the Holy Spirit of the saving work of Christ and of the glory which he's prepared for us. The remaining chapters of this book deal with this theme. So let's... Um, let's Let's read. This is a long quote from St. Gregory. Um, I'll read it. What time is it? 1.26. We've got a little time. So this is a quote from St. Gregory, the theologian. Um, we have a, a, a relic of St. Gregory, the theologian, here um, at the church. A little piece of, of his bone. He says, Yesterday I was crucified with him. Today I am glorified with him. Yesterday I died with him. Today I am made alive with him. Yesterday I was buried with him. Today I am raised up with him. Let us offer to him who suffered and rose again for us ourselves the possession most precious to God and most proper. Let us become like Christ since he became like us. Let us become divine for his sake. Since he became man, he assumed the worse, that we that he might give us the better. He became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. He accepted the form of a servant, that we might win back our freedom. He came down, that we might be lifted up. He was tempted, that through him we might conquer. He was dishonored, that he might glorify us. He died, that he might save us. He ascended that he might draw us who were thrown down through the fall of sin to himself. Let us give all, offer all to him who gave himself as a ransom and reconciliation for us. We needed an incarnate God, a God put to death that we might live. We were put to death together with him that we might be cleansed. We rose again with him because we were put to death with him. We were glorified with him because we rose again with him. A few drops of blood recreate the whole universe. That's a capital B blood. A few drops of Christ's blood recreate the whole universe. What reason can be given why the blood of the only begotten should be pleasing to the Father? For he did not accept even Isaac when he was offered by his father, but he gave a substitute for a sacrifice, a lamb to take the place of of the rational victim. It is not clear that the Father accepts the sacrifice, not because he demanded or needed it, but because this was part of the divine economy, since man had to be sanctified by the humanity of God, so that he might rescue us by overcoming the tyrant by force and bringing us back to himself through the mediation of the Son, who carried out his divine plan to the honor of the Father to whom he clearly delivers up all things. There's not much more to say like ever, ever again after reading that quote, other than go and do that, all of that. Okay, you're good. Um, let's read, I'll read the, this quote by St. Athanasius the Great. He says, the body of the word, the logos, word with a capital W, the body of the word, then being a real human body, in spite of its having been uniquely formed from a virgin, was of itself mortal and like other bodies liable to death. But the indwelling of the word loosed it from this natural liability so that corruption could not touch it. Thus it happened that two opposite marvels took place at once, 
The death of all was consummated in the Lord's body, yet because the word was in it, death and corruption were in the same act utterly abolished. All right. So we have a little special study on Great and Holy Saturday, uh, which is which is coming up next month. Do you guys know what day Pascha is? 24th. April 24th. What day is Great and Holy Saturday then? The 23rd, the day before. What day is Holy Friday then? Which day is Holy Thursday? What day is Palm Sunday? No, okay, I'm just kidding. Um, you know... We we really ramp up, you know. During Holy Week, we have we have multiple services every day, um, and this. So I don't. I'm not into guilt tripping people. It doesn't really work. I mean, it works for some people, but then they miss the point of doing what they should be doing because they're doing it for the wrong reasons, you know. Because like. If I don't do it, Dad will be mad at me. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want people to feel that way about their priest. Um, I don't want them to think, you know, that I'm going to be mad at them. The, the relationship that we have here and the relationship that we have here is not of falling in and out of favor of, of someone. So that being said, there's the reason we have lots of services um, is so that we can be there, be, attend them. So that, now we live in a day and age where people are. What do most people tell you? How are you? I'm busy. 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 We're busy. And busyness is, I understand it, is a matter of survival. We're busy because we have to do things, we have to get things accomplished, we need to get paid, we, you know. People rely on us, and so on. But business, busyness is... So, to some extent, it's a matter of survival. It's also a mindset that we've taken on. And, but it, I want to say it's a matter of priorities, too. Because we prioritize, even in the midst of our busy schedules, we prioritize certain things. Why? Because we value them. So... I'm not saying, so value the church because I'm saying you should and come to all the services. But I am saying, think about that, that paradigm. When, when you value something, you invest in it. You know, some, someone you really care about is coming out of, in, into town. You haven't seen them for a long time. If you care enough about them, you're going to clear your schedule to be with them. Um, and so... Anyway, I'm not saying, again, this isn't a guilt trip, but it's just there's, there is a, a shift that takes place, a, a change in our mindset where when we desire to celebrate the resurrection with all of our heart, with all of our being, when we desire to, to be healed in the way that the church heals us through her services and through her teachings, you come to a point where it's like you, you just want to realistically draw nearer to that. Seek those opportunities that the church provides. And um, during the season of Great Lent, we're always trying to tell people, come to more services. Um, but of course, Father Jeremiah is going to tell you that. So, you know, 
I always tease people, if you're thinking about whether or not coming, whether or not to come, just ask yourself whether or not I'll be here. And usually I am, unless I'm at a different church. Um, but uh, that being said, just I, w- I want you to, th- to think about that as you're growing into orthodoxy, as you're working your schedules. I know there's a transition that needs to take place, but there are also times when we're, we're teetering on the line. We know what we need to do. We just need to take the next step. Consider doing it. Um, Especially, especially taking Holy Week seriously, trying to come to, to more services during that time if you can. Um, not everyone's able to take a whole week off of work in order to... Yeah. Speaking of work. Yeah. If people really cared enough about catechism, for example, they would just... I know you care. Bye, guys. Um, so... Um, originally, the Feast of Pascha, Pascha is the Greek word from, for Passover. And it's, it's in reference to, we don't use the word Easter. It has, there's multiple theories about the origin of the word Easter, which we're not going to get into. But Pascha is just, it means Passover, and it's reference to, well, there's an Old Testament, Testament reference to the Passover that happened to the, to the Hebrew people, but it's Christ's Passover from death to life, too. So we use that term, Pascha. That's the original term. Um, so I heard in one of the translations that the, the choir was reading early this morning, they went, da-da-da-da-da, Easter. There was the, for some reason, someone translated something. Do you catch that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were only a handful of us here at that time. But then she paused for a second and she went, Easter. Hmm. Every once in a while, a translator, I don't know, we'll do something like that. But we generally use the word Pascha. Pascha. Um, I'm running out of room. P-A-C-H-A. Kind of like pasta, but with a C-H. And we use the word Pascha a lot. When we, do, we have this hymn um, that we do during the Pascha season. Pascha of beauty, the Pascha of the Lord. Pasca, a Pasca, worthy of all honor has dawned for us. Pasca. We just say the word Pasca over and over. One of the little kids was like, why were they singing about pasta so much in that service? <laughs> Another kid, don't tell me, don't tell them what you said. Another kid said, why are they saying many ears? Ears, not another one that starts with B. That sounds like years. Isn't that what you guys used to say? Yeah. God grant you many ears. Not. Anyway. Okay. So, no. Years. It's just, oh, it's years, sweetie. We just want them to not have more ears um, or beverages. But we want them to have more years. You know, a long life. So, anyway. Pascha. So, um, it was originally celebrated just on one, one day. Sunday. And over time, however, the services became more elaborate. The celebration stretched out over three days. And so I, I was reminding someone recently, like the original, um, what, what we now have as Holy Lent, of Lent and Holy Week, it was just three days. Three days of fasting. Can you believe three whole days um, leading up to Pascha? Now we've got 
the 40 days. We call it 40 days, but that's a little tricky because it doesn't count the weekends and it doesn't count Holy Week. So it's more like 50 days. But, um, but the celebration stretched out over three days um, to comprise the present complex of services of Holy Friday, Holy Saturday, and Pascha itself. At the heart of this liturgical complex is Great and Holy Saturday. The tone of Great and Holy Saturday is set during Vespers, which is sung on Friday afternoon. The service commemorates the taking down of Christ from the cross. And some of these services, they're not to be missed. These, like the, the removal, the, the Vespers that happens on Holy Friday. And if you can make it to the Lamentations at the tomb, which happens later. There are multiple services that day. Um, for the first time during the Paschal cycle, we sing the Noble Joseph. And actually, you can see on our, we learned the word epitaphios. On our epitaphios or shroud here, you have the hymn. The Noble Joseph, when he had taken down your most pure body from the tree, wrapped it in linen, and anointed it with spices, and placed it in a new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea. At, at the matins or orthros, usually sung on Friday evening, the church gathers around the tomb of Christ. And that's what this, that's what this is, this, uh, this structure. It's a, here's our terms, key terms for today. Beer. Or, I heard one guy, he said beer, when I was new to orthodoxy, he said, you know, we decorate the beer, getting ready for Pascha. And I'm thinking, what do you do? What do you, how do you decorate beer? And he goes like, no, buyer, B-I-E-R. Oh. Um, but it's, it's the tomb. You know, it represents the tomb where Christ was laid. And it actually gets set up out here, decorated with flowers. And the, the epitaphios is laid on it. And the services center around that, that part of the, um, the church where, um, where the tomb is. So, um, okay, the church gathers around the tomb, yes. The heart of the matins, there's the, the Russian term for the morning service is matins, and the Greek term is orthros. Those two terms mean the same thing. Um, we tend to say orthros, but in this book they use the term matins. So the heart of the matin service is singing of the praises at the tomb, the praises consist of short hymns sung alternately with the verses of Psalm 118 or 119, depending on the, the, um, the Bible you're using. If you're using the Orthodox Bible, then it's Psalm 118. If it's in Protestant Bibles, it's Psalm 119, the longest psalm in this, the uh, book of Psalms. These hymns develop two themes that recur throughout the next two days. First of all, the, hymn, the hymns are meditation upon the great condescension of God toward us. That was a weird term for me to learn when I, when I was becoming Orthodox. Father James kept using the term, he catechized me, he kept saying, condescension of God, the condescension. And, uh, and then as I was listening to the, the hymns of the church more, I caught it in there too. I always thought about condescension in terms of my mom being condescending to me. You know? Oh, it doesn't, it, don't be condescending to people. You know, don't look down on them. But this technically means him actually meeting us at our level. Come, 
coming down. Con with descend, to come down. So coming down with, to be with us. The condescension of God toward us. We're called to reflect upon the fact that the creator of life of all has tasted death to bring us salvation. And it goes like this. I'll sing it. O life, how canst thou die? How canst thou dwell in the tomb? Yet thou dost destroy death's kingdom and raise the dead from hell. Something like that. And we have that kind of melody for the first section. And then there are three sections where the melody changes. It kind of intensifies and then it lightens up a little bit. O Jesus, another one of the hymns is, O Jesus, King of all, who has set measures to the earth, thou dost go this day to dwell in a narrow grave, raising up the dead from the tombs. The second theme developed is the descent of Christ into Hades itself to release all those held captive. When the Lord gave up his spirit on the cross, his most pure soul descended into the kingdom of death itself to destroy its power. All devouring hell received within himself the rock of life, and cast forth all the dead that he had swallowed since the beginning of the world. How great the joy, how full the gladness that thou hast brought to those in hell, shining as lightning in its gloomy depths. I like to think of things like when Simeon the God receiver, do you know who Simeon is in, the, in Luke 2? Is it Luke 2? In Luke, Simeon received, he was given the promise that he would see the Messiah before he departed this earth. And he was a very old man in the temple. And he received Christ and he said the beautiful words, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And in the teaching of the church and the, the, the story that we have remaining of Simeon is that he passed. And where did he go, though? He went to await Christ Again, because death had not been overcome, so he didn't shoot straight to heaven because there was no path to heaven yet. So he who held Christ in his arms as a child awaited the descent of Christ into Hades, who then, I picture Christ taking Simeon up in his arms and ascending with him from death to life. I think about things like that. We also say of St. John the Baptist, he was proclaiming, he was the forerunner of Christ in life, and he was the forerunner uh, of Christ in death. We say of him that he proclaimed even to the dead, those in Hades, the coming of Christ. It's be really beautiful. And then, like he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Imagine when Christ descended into Hades and St. John gets could say, oh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This theme is further developed during the, the Vesperal Liturgy. We have a, a liturgy on Saturday. We do it, well, most churches do it in the morning. We do it at 10 um, in the morning. Here, hell itself testifies to the power of Christ. So one of the poetic devices uses in the, used in the church to, to get across the point it's teaching about hell and heaven and death and Christ, Christ's triumph. We put words into the mouth of things. Like I imagined today the trees celebrating. 
hooray, one of our own has become, you know, has become the, uh, the trophy of peace and the weapon of salvation. And so you hear on that day, hell groaning and crying aloud. And hell is saying, my dominion has been swallowed up. The shepherd has been crucified and he has raised Adam. I am deprived of those whom once I ruled. In my strength I devoured them. But now I have cast them forth. He who was crucified has emptied the tombs. The power of death has no more strength. Hades is lamenting. Glory to thy cross, O Lord, and to thy resurrection. To this, the Vesperal Liturgy adds the theme of the Sabbath rest. It, we, we call it the great, the great Sabbath. We know, I'll ta- I'll, I'll, maybe I'll comment on it after I finish. We're almost done with this section. So um, we know from the Gospels that our Lord was taken down from the cross so that he could be buried before the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday. And that's the first day. Sometimes people have asked me, like, well, it was, it was like the end of the day on Friday, and then Saturday, and then Sunday. But how, how does it work out being, was he, was he dead three days? Would, and you don't need to get too technical about it, but Friday's the first day, you know, Saturday's the, excuse me, Friday's the first day, Saturday's the second day. Sunday is the third day on which he rose from the dead. It wasn't three sleeps, as my kids used to say. It was two sleeps that took course over the place of, took place over the course of three days. You can't kids don't get days, but they do get sleeps. Have you ever heard that? How many sleeps from now? How many sleeps until we get to celebrate Pascha? So Christ remained in the tomb during the Sabbath. So he was crucified on Friday and he was buried, which is all experienced in the church in those services. And then he's laid to rest. And he remains resting on that Saturday, which is the Sabbath day in the Jewish tradition. And that doesn't go unnoticed. The hymnographer develops this in a beautiful way. In the hymns of the church, we hear Moses the Great mystically prefigured this present day, saying, and God blessed the seventh day, Saturday. For this is that blessed Sabbath. This is the day of rest on which the only begotten Son of God rested from all his works. Suffering death in accordance with the plan of salvation, he kept the Sabbath in the flesh. And returning once again to what he was, through his resurrection, he has granted us eternal life, for he alone is good and loves mankind. So you can see in that teaching of Moses about God resting on the seventh day, we see the fulfillment of that rest. When Christ is in the tomb, Interestingly enough, what is Christ doing while the body is laying in the tomb? He's plundering Hades. So we don't do this here, but there is a funny tradition of people bringing... Did you guys ever do this, like bring wood sticks or pots and pans? And at a, when we do, arise, O God, judge the earth. 
and the priest comes out and on Holy Saturday with the flowers and stuff. Sometimes people will, I don't want to give you, I don't want to, I can give you some teasers, but no spoilers. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of a, a climax in that service where we have some special singing and uh, celebratory things going on, I'll say. And then in some churches, the kids are banging pots and pans and hitting sticks together, representing Christ harrowing Hades. You know, he's trample, or trampling on Hades. You know, so I've seen videos of it, and it's a little too chaotic. But it's sweet. It's sweet. Oh, man, my son would. I'll let him do it at home. We'll do a little reenactment at home, but you can't even hear the choir anymore. Like, it's so loud with all the... But anyway. So, the book of Genesis tells us that upon completing the creation of the world on the sixth day, God rested on the seventh. The seventh day represents the fulfillment of the present creation. When Christ ascended to death to keep the Sabbath, he created... Or, uh, excuse me, the created order reached its fulfillment. When he arose from the dead, he inaugurated a new order. For he arose not on the first day of a new cycle, but on the eighth day, the day of the new creation that knows no end. And so now um, the church has this, this kind of term that we use. We call it the eighth. Sunday is not the first day of a new chronological cycle of seven days, but it represents kind of, again, everything, we use a lot of poetic imagery. It represents the eighth day, that the cycle of death doesn't just repeat itself, but the eighth and eternal day, the day that has no evening, has been inaugurated for those who believe in Christ, who choose to follow him. So, Okay. What time is it right now? One fifty-two. Um, is there anything else I want to tell you about? I don't know. That concludes our, our, our topic for this time. So next time, we don't do these um, reflection questions. I tried them my first, couple, my first couple of times through the book, and I think you can look through them on your own if you want. And I didn't, I didn't do my normal email yesterday. I, was, I had a really busy day yesterday. But uh, usually I send out a PDF of the chapter that we're reading so that you can bring it up on your, on, on your device or print it out at home if you want to read. This book is not currently in publication right now because the publishing house, I think, I think the owner um, passed and no one carried it on. And so it carried on the work. But... Uh, Maybe, maybe if there's a need, I can start printing up individual copies of the, the chapters since we have more people. That might be helpful. So now we're going to get into the next, the next uh, session, transitions from kind of the, the theology, like what the church believes, to how the church lives. Um, we're going to get into the birth and the mission of the church. Um, and we're going to start digging into the sacraments. Missions in evangelism. Talk about some more practical things like the structure of the church. Um, ecumenical councils. Yeah, and then the sacraments. Baptism, 
chrismation. We're going to talk about monasticism, the place of monasticism in orthodoxy. Um, Mount Athos. If you guys have heard of Mount Athos, it doesn't take long looking into orthodoxy before you hear something about Mount Athos. And uh, there was a there was a cool sixty minutes that they did. How long ago? Seven years ago or something? Where sixty minutes was allowed to visit one of the monasteries of Mount Athos, and uh, they did they did a, a whole segment on visiting. Mount Athos is a peninsula off of Greece, for those of you who don't know, that has um, many monasteries that have been there for around a thousand years. And it's a place that is set apart specifically for those who are living the monastic life. So we'll talk more about, about that. So we'll get into more, you know, some, some more of the... Um, the practical aspects of the, the church along the way. Um, anything else? Does anyone have any thoughts or questions? You guys reading anything good lately? I know you're reading Abba Dorotheos. You've told me at my recommendation, which is a very good book. I recommend it. I would recommend that book to anyone. Discourses and Sayings of Dorotheos of Gaza. Um, anyone else reading reading any good books? Father Arseny, yes. I love that book. And I think I told you, you should read the second one too. Yeah, there are two I books. I I think I do, and I might be able to lend it to you. I'm, I, I also think we need to get it in the bookstore too. Because yeah. it's, so, yeah, about about a, an Orthodox priest who suffered under communism, about his, his life and... Um, in prison and out of prison under, you know, during times of religious persecution. It's a very insightful book. And it's one of the, probably the, one of the first five books I usually recommend people who are kind of newer to orthodoxy. Anything else? Anything else? Anything that's worked for you guys? You know, the, any things that kind of make it click a little bit more or have taken you to kind of a deeper understanding of orthodoxy? Everything, the services, talking with people, <laughs> listening to teachings, all of the above. There's a um, daily Lent meditation for Orthodox families. Mm -hmm. That's been really good for my family. Oh, good. Just like little things for each day, and mm -hmm. it incorporates a lot of little things within the church. That sort of just is like, oh, like these little aha things about what else is going on. Oh, good. Can you share that with me? Do you know who puts it out? It was um, Alisa Bielitich. Okay. Yeah. She does a lot of that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Thank you. And is it a recording, like a podcast? She has a book, and it's also on a podcast. Like, you can get the audible book. Oh, okay. But it's a book. Nice. Okay, good. If you think we should have it downstairs, let me know. We put add it to our bookstore. Anything um, else? The Orthodox Faith and Life in Christ by St. Eugene Pablo. Oh, and yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, if you ever want to know Christ, like, what Christianity is all about, like, here's this book. Like, it, like, that book is really a fullness. I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's like something that's bigger on the inside. It's like a TARDIS. 
There's a pop culture reference. It's like bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Like you go, you, you open up that book and you start reading and it just opens an expanse to you of what, how, how real God is and but what a great mystery too. There's a, like this perfect balance. Theanthropos. He uses the term theanthropos, which means God-man, in reference to Christ. Christ is the God-man, properly. So, okay. Anything else? Thank you. Thank you for coming today. I have a, a one of our guys was invited by his mom. He's, he's a convert to Orthodoxy, and he was invited to by his mom to go back to his... Uh, the church he grew up in and give a presentation on why he became Orthodox, which is very interesting. And it was a good talk. He wrote it all out. It's Brian. I don't know if you guys know Brian Robertson. But um, he sent me the text of it, and it was really nice the way he laid it out. So I told him one of these days I'm going to have him come to the catechism group and give that presentation. It would be really good. So um, I don't know. I don't know when. Maybe once we get through, or to a certain point in the, in our text together, we can stop and have him come as kind of a special session. But uh, that's something I've been thinking about doing. It's neat to hear other people's stories. You know, there are things that you can relate to, and there are things that you haven't thought of. You know, from other people's stories. Okay, well, let's end with a prayer, and then I'll let you go. Oh, yeah, I'm in the wrong place. Here we go. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Christ, our God, who at all times and in every hour in heaven and on earth are worshipped and glorified, Lord, long-suffering, merciful, and compassionate, who lovest the just and showest mercy upon the sinner, who callest all to salvation through the promise of blessings to come. O Lord, in this hour, receive our supplications and direct our lives according to thy commandment. Sanctify our souls, hallow our bodies, correct our thoughts, cleanse our minds, deliver us from all tribulation, evil, and distress. Encompass us with thy holy angels that guided and guarded by them we maintain into the unity of the faith to the knowledge of thine unapproachable glory, that thou art blessed unto the ages of ages. Amen. Okay, God bless you all. Go in peace. <laughs>